many of you got your Bibles with you tonight? Let me see those Bibles again. Hold those up in the air one more time. That's good. I want you to turn to John 21. John 21, please. I want to talk about faith in the fog tonight. John 21. It's a fairly long reading, but how many believe it's really okay to read the Word of God and let it speak for itself? Come on, you can say amen to that. All right, John 21, and uh, let, let me read these verses to you. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus. I've often wondered if Thomas was happy about that, but that's not important right now. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, <coughs> haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now look at me for a moment. Who was, who was that? John. John. Okay, John. Who wrote this? Okay, I'm just saying, just saying. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus called to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This morning I was um, confessing the fact that I uh, get lost all the time. I am navigationally challenged. And one of my supreme moments of lostness was when I actually got lost in a church restroom. I thought that was quite an accomplished thing. Can I just say, by the way, that uh, we preachers, we Christian, we do have to use the bathroom occasionally. I think it's important that we confess that. We, uh, we, we do go to the bathroom. Um, I went to one church and popped into the restroom and a 
guy came in and recognized me, and he said, uh, he said, hi, Pastor Jeff. He said, I'm rather surprised to see you in here. I thought, what do you think we do? Pray about it? You know, this is, this is really weird. So anyway, I was, I was in this church bathroom in Toronto, Canada. I was speaking at a fairly high-powered leaders' conference. You know, those kind of high-powered ones, you know, reaching the world for Jesus by next Tuesday. One of those kind of conferences. And uh, it was a leaders' conference. And in this church bathroom, they had loudspeakers in the bathroom so that you could use the facilities and enjoy the service at the same time. Very helpful Christian multitasking. So I'm, so I'm in the bathroom washing my hands, which by the way is a really good thing to do. Please do that. It's probably in the Bible somewhere you should do that. And if it's not, it should be. And I'm in the bathroom and uh, I suddenly hear the leader of the conference and he says, uh, Pastor Jeff Lucas is going to come and speak now. And I'm thinking, he's not. No, 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 he's not. He's in the bathroom. That's where he is. And he is in the worshipful position with one of those demonic hot air things where you, you stand there for 20 minutes being ecologically friendly but frustrated. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, you get to worship, but it's kind of dull. And, and so... Uh, I can hear him saying, he said, Pastor Jeff, come. And I'm thinking, I better get out of here. So I, I went to push the door to get out of the bathroom, and the door would not open. So I, I pushed the door. It won't open. I put my shoulder to the door. It won't open. I kicked the door. It won't open. This is a high-powered, charismatic conference. So I rebuked the door. <laughs> and it would not open. And then I look in the mirror, and I realize I've got turned around in the bathroom. The exit door is behind me. And I just spent the last five minutes trying to break into the supplies cupboard. <laughs> One minute later, I ran up onto the platform to speak on the subject, what God is doing around the earth. <laughs> I thought, how do I know? I can't even get out of the toilet. You know, what's, what's that about? I felt lost. I felt bewildered. I felt like, where... Where to now? How do I get out of this place? Whatever next. I want to suggest to us in John 21, we were talking this morning about a people scattered. In John 21, we see the disciples, and I want to suggest to us that they would have been feeling lost and, and bewildered and confused, somewhat still overwhelmed by the theological and emotional tsunami that the resurrection created. You see, they had seen Jesus but it had been a week. If I get my resurrection chronology correct, there had been around seven days since they'd seen Jesus. And the Bible makes it clear, it's not like Jesus is alive. Hooray, hand me a tambourine, let's go change the world, boys. That's not the way it was. There's still this mingling of joy and confusion and faith and doubt. The Bible says things like they're startled, they're frightened, they thought they'd seen a ghost, they're troubled, they're doubting, they worship, but some doubted, they're trembling, bewildered, afraid. They did not believe, they stubbornly refused to believe. They gathered fearfully, they were overjoyed. They hadn't seen him for a week. And the last time they saw him was back in Jerusalem, 68 miles away. You say, well, what's, what's the big deal? They were told to go to Galilee, sure. But these are good Jewish boys. 
And as good Jewish boys, they had a theological expectation that Messiah would come to Jerusalem, set up earthly thrones, get rid of the hated Romans, and establish the kingdom of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. That was their theological grid. Therefore, whenever Jesus got near Jerusalem, people started talking thrones. How about a throne for my boys, said Salome, concerning James and John. Why? She's a Jewish lady. She thinks Jesus is going to do his stuff in Jerusalem. But now it's a week, and it's Galilee, and it's nighttime. You did fishing at night then, and you sell the catch in the morning. John, in his gospel, uses night and darkness like an artist with a color palette, not only giving us the chronology of the event, but the mood of it as well. And then Jesus shows up, and I love this because he's right there, and they don't realize that it's him. I don't know about you, but that cheers me up no end. They don't even know that it's him because it's so ordinary. If I had been given responsibility for the choreography of the resurrection, they would have known that it was him. I'd have had 64,000 angels in fluorescent yellow Doc Martins tap dancing on the beach. I'd have had navy jets swooping overhead with he is risen in red, yellow, and blue smoke. I would have had the New York Philharmonic Orchestra playing the Hallelujah Chorus on the beach with a choir prophetically because it hadn't been written at that point. Oh yeah, I would have made it really clear that it was Jesus. What's he doing? Look at this. He's just beaten the powers of death and hell. And he's cooking breakfast. You can imagine a couple of angels, British angels, <laughs> leaning over the parapet of heaven. And one says to the other, what doth our Lord doeth now? And the other one says, he cooketh breakfast. And he must have gone fishing or shopping that day right? Because there's already fish there. I mean, if you want to believe that he just stood on the beach and just said, tilapia, come forth. <laughs> I mean, you know, he could do that. The beauty of it all, ladies and gentlemen, is that after beating the powers of death and hell, Jesus shows up and cooks breakfast for his house. They're weary, they're confused, but they're not abandoned. 20 years ago as a Christian leader, I was writing books and traveling around the world and I spent a year in clinical depression. A year. It was bad. And some of you will know what I mean when I tell you that not only did I feel bad, but I felt bad because I felt bad. Anyone relate to that at all? You see, I became a Christian in an atmosphere where you had to be on the edge of ecstasy at all times. You know what I'm saying? We sang ridiculous songs back then. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am. I'm sure I am. I am H-A-P-P-Y. Yeah, I know it was deep. We sang another great theological classic. It isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. No, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. If you pack up all your troubles, then they'll vanish like a bubble if you only take the trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. 
It's enough to make you V-O-M-I-T. And I was depressed. And I was having panic attacks. And I'm waking up in the middle of the night feeling like I'm drowning in the dark. And I felt bad because I felt bad. And some of my friends weren't that helpful. They'd been previously employed by Job and they came to me. They said, so, we hear you haven't got the victory. I said, well, apparently not. Well, what can we do to help? And I felt like saying, how about going away forever? That would be a great start. You know the weird thing? Still as I travel and I confess that I was depressed, people are still shocked. That's why I want to talk about it. Because one of the things I love about this church, I mean, there's a number of things. For one thing, you're slightly crazy, and I really, really like that. You know, I like that. But I, I, I need to calm down because I could get really excited about it. But I love, I love, I love, I love the mingling of supernatural expectation with an earthy humanity which is authentic and real. Keep it going, C3. I get sick and tired of being around Christian leaders who are glow-in-the-dark fluorescent. Bless God, I, I woke up this morning, did a triple backflip out of bed, catching my tambourine as I flew through the air. I landed in my cowboy boots and the angel Gabriel handed me a cup of tea, not iced tea, hot tea. Someone said to me recently, a Christian publisher said, the trouble with you, Lucas, is you're too honest for the church. Hello? I thought we're supposed to be people of the truth. Is anyone there? So here is this group of guys there. They're weary. They haven't caught anything. So what does Jesus do? First of all, he gives them purpose. He realigns them to purpose. That's the first thing. He says, friends, haven't you any fish? And they have breakfast. And he says, do you love me more than these. It's a very interesting question and comment. Have you ever noticed how much fish talk there is in this, in this story? There's a lot of fishing. Peter says, I'm going fishing. The guys say, I'll go, we'll go with you. We're told they don't catch anything. Jesus shows up and asks for a fishing update. We haven't caught anything. Jesus gives them fishing directions. We're told where they fish. We're told how many fish they caught. And then it's time for breakfast. Guess what's on the menu? Fish. A lot of fish. And then Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? These what? Well, you see, a lot of commentators say that Jesus was saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Well, maybe that's the case, but would Jesus do that because Peter had already tried that one once? I'll never deny you, even if everybody else does. It's a question, not a statement. Is it possible that Jesus was saying to Peter, do you love me more than you love fish? You think about it. Fisherman Peter wouldn't have to worry about persecution, church doctrine, leadership. He'd just have a quiet life. You get up in the morning or go in the evening, you go fishing, you come home, there's nothing on TV for another couple of thousand years for another early night. You just get up the next morning and just live you see just to be honest with you lean forward because this is just between me and you lean forward some of you are going i will not lean forward 
This is America. Don't you British people come over here and tell us to adjust our posture. Just lean forward. Lean forward. It's not the 4th of July. Get over it. Lean forward. Every now and again, I could be tempted to just live that kind of life. You see, every now and again, I don't want a purpose-driven life. Every now and again, I don't want purpose. I don't want driven. I just want a life. I don't want to worry about making poverty history or reaching the guy next door or winning the world. I I was going to say I just want to go play golf, but that's a lie. I don't have a swing. It's a spasm, so I'm not going to do that. Do you love me more than you love fish? You can lean back now. Thank you. I appreciate it. But then, look at this. We are told how many fish they caught. Some sad person who needs to get out more is counting fish with the risen Jesus right there. Some dude is going 148, 149, 150, 151, 52, 153. Write that down, someone. The commentators go ballistic on the 153 thing. One commentator says 153 fish, the number of different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee at that time, one for every species. What? That'd be a grilling nightmare, wouldn't it? How do you cook that? I'll stick that one on for another five minutes. Another one says 153, the number of nations in the ancient world, the fish are a missiological statement. What? Another one says 153, a triangular number that would have impressed ancient Pythagorean philosophers. Hello. As if Jesus said, I know what I'll do. I'll give them 153 fish because this will impress ancient Pythagorean philosophers. Ladies and gentlemen, right here at C3, 6.10 p.m. on a Sunday evening after 2,000 years of speculation, I believe I can reveal to you why it is that 153 fish were recorded. Are you ready for the revelation? Hold on to something solid. It's going to rock your world. The reason why 153 fish are recorded is... Because that's how many they caught. I know, it's deep. It's deep. Listen, is it possible that it's recorded that they caught the catch of their life because from now on the catch of their life would never be enough? They had been kissed by a vision of the kingdom of God. Do you love me more than these, Peter? If you've been kissed by a vision of the kingdom of God, survival will never work for you again. You are never going to just go to work to get the money, to buy the food, to give you the strength, to go to work, to get the money, to buy the food, to give you the strength. It won't work, honey. It won't work. And Jesus is saying, do you you love me more than survival? Oh, you know, there may be days when we just like to settle down. Don't let it happen. Don't ever let it happen, C3. But go for the destiny. Pastor Matt, you were talking earlier about destiny. People having their destiny, fulfilling it. Live in your destiny. 
and not simply into survival. Secondly, there's grace here. There's grace. Peter, Peter and John are in the boat. In the New Testament, Peter always takes action before John, and John always understands before Peter. It's just the way it is. It's all, you just follow it through. I haven't got time to unpack it, but it's just the way it is. So John says, because he always figures it out, John says, it is the Lord. Splash. Well, Peter's gone. He's, he's already put his coat on before jumping into the water, which is a bit Monty Python, but that's not important. And he runs up onto the beach, and what's on the beach? A fire. There's a fire of coals. Again, I, I, I prefer your pronunciation of the word. We say fire. You lovely Americans, you say fire. So, Peter runs up on the beach. There's a fire. When's the last time you see a fire in John's gospel? A fire in John's gospel. It's when Peter is warming his hands by a fire. So what's going on? Is Jesus tormenting Peter with his shame? I don't think so. I believe, I suggest to you, that Jesus is locating himself in Peter's story. And Jesus is enabling Peter to sit down by the fire. The fire said, yes, you did it. But now, sitting by the fire, he's able to say, I love you. Please see this. The forgiveness of God does not deny our shame. It does not minimize what we've done. It doesn't pretend it didn't happen. The forgiveness of God says, yes, you did it. Now sit down by the fire and do you love me and let's move on with life together. The fire says we can accept grace. I'll tell you what, we Christians, we're pretty good at not getting the good news. When I was a brand new Christian, someone said to me, well, if you feel bad, it must be God. That's a terrible piece of advice. They even gave me a Bible verse. They said, you know, the Bible says, always let your conscience be your guide. I thought, I wonder where that Bible verse is. Is that in the Sermon on the Mount or Proverbs? Always let your conscience be your guide. I, I finally tracked it down. It's Jiminy Cricket to Pinocchio. See, your conscience is useful but not infallible. And what we tend to do, please see this, is we define ourselves by our worst moments. Like Michelangelo who came down from a difficult day painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and he came down and he wrote in his journal, I am not a painter. I think he was wrong, don't you think? This week I went to one of my favorite resorts in Colorado. I love it. It's a fabulous bird, wildlife there. Lone birds skitting around, squadrons of birds landing in perfect choreographed orchestration. There are pools there, but they're not great to swim in because they've got a greasy film on the top. And the whole place stinks. Bad. But I love it. It's the Loveland City. We live in the city of Loveland. It's the Loveland City garbage dump. I love the place. 
Kay says to me, it's time to take the trash to the garbage dump. I become like a giddy chimpanzee filled with joy. I load these stinking, fetid plastic bags that are spilling over with garbage and I put them into my car, the stench of them staining the air and I drive to my favorite resort. There's a man in a little hut. I call him the concierge. I pay him a dollar fifty. I drive round to the dumpster. I get my black plastic sack out. We have a little hug goodbye because we're never going to meet again. I open the dumpster and I toss my trash into the dumpster. I drive home liberated, exhilarated. I have dumped my trash. You know what some of us did tonight? What some of us did tonight is we came in here and we dragged our trash and we can smell it and we remember it and it stains our mind and we sing our songs and we jump up and down and we celebrate forgiveness and then at the end of the evening we're going to pick up our trash and haul it out with us again and drag it around. Ladies and gentlemen, sit down by the fire. Give your trash to Jesus. He came to take our junk, our trash. Thirdly, there's focus. There's focus here. You see, Peter turns and see that John has showed up. Jesus and Peter are walking along the beach. And Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to die a martyr's death. I mean, I love prophetic words, don't you? You know, I, I love, you know, but I, I want nice prophetic words. God's going to bless you. He's going to enlarge your territory. He's going to give you a new head of hair. I want that. Jesus prophesied over Peter three times. Prophecy number one, you're going to be sifted like wheat. Satan's after you. Prophecy number two, you're going to deny me three times. And prophecy number three, the crowning prophecy, you're going to die a martyr's death. If I was Peter and Jesus looked like he had a prophecy coming on, I'd leave town. And just then, John shows up and Peter's probably, I mean, you'd have a lot of questions, wouldn't you? You're going to die a martyr's death. I'd be thinking, well, when? How long have I got? Is it going to hurt? Is it worth staying with the diet? Practical questions. And then John shows up, and you can understand poor old Peter, because he says, what about him? Which my translation is, have you got a cracker for him as well? Jesus could have said, well, actually, yes, John is going to be exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and they will try to boil him alive. So it's sort of even Stevens, really. But Jesus says, what's that to you? follow me. You know what we do? We play trivia pursuit about things that don't matter. We get upset and irritated about unimportant things and it's worse in passionate churches. It's worse. Let me tell you what happens. In a mediocre church, people say things like this. I didn't like that worship song. In a passionate church, people say things like this. I did not like that worship song. 
And what happens is we become part of church and then someone irritates us, something upsets us. And we turn it into a consumer product and we think that God is on the side of our preferences. You know what God wants to do with some of us? He wants to say, what's that to do with you? Why don't you mind your own business and just follow me? Now that's kind of blunt. I'm leaving town tomorrow. So I'll just say that. See, church is not a consumer product. If church was a consumer product, we'd have greeters at the door, and as they welcomed you, they could say, welcome to C3. So happy that you're here tonight. Would you like to sit in clapping or non-clapping this evening? I've had a bit of a rough week. Could I sit in non-clapping, non-worshipping, non-smiling, non-listening, non-giving in the offering, non-listening to the message? Could I sit in that section, please? And in some churches they'd say, I'm very sorry, that section's always very full. I'm afraid we just can't fit you in. Listen, C3, don't allow trivia pursuit to mar your fellowship together. Don't ever let it happen. Stay focused and let Jesus say, what is that to you? Well, the last thing is this. Perfect timing, sir, with the keyboard. What's your name? Zach. Round of applause for Zach. I like Zach. Just play something for us, Zach. Just quietly, if you would. Perfect. Thank you, Zach. The last thing is calling. Calling. You see, John 21 is a replay of Luke 5. Luke 5 is three years earlier when Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Galilee, miraculous catch of fish, sin crisis in Peter. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Three years later, Jesus rebuilds the scenery. And then, having given the prophetic update, martyrdom, Jesus says, follow me. Now around these parts, Peter had walked on water. Anyone here ever walked on water? Anyone ever done that? Anyone ever tried to walk on water? God bless you, Pastor. If you tried to walk on water, raise your hand right now if you've ever tried. There is the largest amount proportionally. And you can put your hands down. I, I tried. I was staying at a hotel, the swimming pool was deserted. So I thought, I'm going to give this walking on water thing a try. I read my Bible for half an hour, spoke in tongues for a bit, waved a flag, head butted a tambourine. I thought, I'm ready. I stood by the pool. I put my swimsuit on because faith without works is dead. I put my foot on the water and I sank. But I tell you what, it looks like a lot of fun. Question, walking on water to get to Jesus, walking through water to get to Jesus. Choose one. I know what I'd rather do. I I, I want to crest across the waves. Yes. I don't know, this is crazy. Maybe that's why Peter put his coat on. Maybe he thought, Galilee, Jesus, I'll give it another try. I don't know. 
if I might get to heaven and meet Peter and he'll say, that was stupid. I was cold. But the point is this. There are days when you walk on water to get to Jesus. And there are seasons when you walk through water to get to Jesus. And listen, some of us tonight, God bless you. You are walking through water right now. And it's up, it's up to your neck. It threatens to overtake you. You're wondering if you can fight the current. But God bless you. You are insisting that walking on water or walking through it, you're going to stay with Jesus. And some days later, a man called Peter stood up with the eleven on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came and the church was birthed. But I don't think it could have happened if they hadn't had breakfast.